We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44. Hear the word of the Lord. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the man's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did, according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord, or what shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was, when we went up to your servant, my father, that, he told, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. The one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen, when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die." So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with the sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. 
Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. The basic problem that humanity faces and has faced since Adam sinned in Genesis 3 is that we are born into slavery. We're born as slaves to sin. Paul says as much in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5, verses 12 and 17. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, by the one man's offense, death reigned. Death reigned. It, it, it had dominion over mankind. In chapter 6, he says that in our union with Christ by faith, our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Slaves of sin and death. That is the condition of all humanity apart from Christ. But Christ died. And then he rose again to new life, defeating death. And Paul says in Romans 6, 8, and 9, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ, by his resurrection, defeated death. Death has no more dominion over him, no, no power over Christ. And if we are united to him in his death and in his resurrection, then we have new life in him. And therefore, Paul says in verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. But this freedom from the dominion of sin and death is only found in Christ. That's the wonderful good news of the gospel. The bad news is is that because of our sin, we are enslaved to sin and to death. The good news of Christ is that he has freed us from that. God knows our condition as slaves to sin, and he gave Christ as a substitute in order to secure our freedom. Well, as we look at Genesis chapter 44 this morning, we have a wonderful picture of this reality in the lives of Joseph and his brothers. We find once again that Joseph is testing his brothers to assure himself that they truly have repented, that they're, they're changed men. They're not the same as they were when they carried out their evil against him in his youth. Last Lord's Day, we saw Joseph treating them kindly. Uh, they had enjoyed a feast in his home, unexpected mercy, No mention was made of them being spies. Remember, on their first journey down to Egypt, he had accused them of being spies. But on this second journey, that was never mentioned. Their second visit was not at all what they had expected. It was purely by the mercy and grace of God. 
And so at the beginning of chapter 44, we find that they are ready for the return trip to Canaan. And we see that Joseph, uh, again, acts in mercy towards them, commanding his steward to load their pack animals with as much food as they can carry, and once again to return their money to them in their sacks. Now, this isn't mentioned again in the chapter, but the return of the money is an important detail that we will come back to. Joseph is setting up his final test for his brothers. He has his steward not only return Benjamin's money in his sack, but also place Joseph's royal cup into Benjamin's sack. Joseph lets them get started on their journey. They get a little ways outside the city, and then he sends his steward after them and once again falsely accuses them. This time they're being framed for stealing this cup. And a quick word about this cup. It's it's a silver cup. It's not gold. We might think, well, silver isn't really that valuable compared to gold. But this is likely uh, the cup that signifies Joseph's station. Pharaoh's cup was likely gold. Joseph's is silver. It's a special cup. It's the cup that he drinks out of as the governor over the land of Egypt. In verse 5, it says... Is this not the one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. And then in verse 15, when the brothers are brought to face Joseph's accusation, he says to them in verse 15, And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination. So uh, we have this question that might arise in our minds. Is Joseph practicing magic here? Is Joseph following the example of the Egyptian magicians? Is he practicing divination? Because that's, that's clearly off limits for God's people as uh, elsewhere told in the scriptures. And commentators disagree on exactly what is happening here. They all agree that he is not practicing divination. He's not practicing the magical arts claimed by the Egyptian magicians. But some, such as Calvin, say that what Joseph was doing was putting on a pretense, that he was deceiving his brothers, making them think that he had these magical powers, and that he sinned greatly in doing so. Others, however, point out that the word simply means to diligently observe or look into something. It often means to look into omens or to signs, and that's where it's translated as divination. But other times it just means to pay attention to the details and be discerning about the circumstances. In 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 33, we read, Now the men were watching closely, it's the same word, to see whether any sign of mercy would come from the king. So in that passage, there's no magic being practiced. They're just paying close attention to the king's words and his body language to discern if he's going to show mercy. And so this is how John Gill understands these verses here in Genesis 44. He says, It seems best of all to understand this not of the cup as the instrument by which he tried, searched, or inquired into things, but rather as the object searched after and inquired of. For the word signifies to inquire, to make a strict observation of things, and thereby make shrewd guesses and conjectures. 
And they might well conclude that a man so wise and penetrating could easily conjecture who were the persons that took away his cup, the strangers who had dined with him so lately. In other words, Gil is arguing that the cup is missing. Joseph is putting on the pretense to his brothers, hey, I saw that the cup was missing. You should have known I was going to figure out that you took it. Either way, whether we believe Joseph was lying to them or we believe that that's how the word should be interpreted, what's important here is to recognize the value of this cup. It's one that was worth him investigating. It was worth him finding out and going after the person that had taken it. It's a valuable cup that signifies his station. And it's been intentionally placed into Benjamin's sack in order to frame him for a crime. And now the brothers have been arrested and once again falsely accused. And the accusation is important. Joseph told his steward to ask the brothers a question. In verse 4, he is to ask them, why have you repaid evil for good? Now, thematically, this is an important question because throughout the entire Joseph narrative here in the latter part of the book of Genesis, there's a thread that is continually continually woven through these narratives that puts in contrast the evil done by Joseph's brothers and the good that is being done by God. The brothers did evil by selling Joseph as a slave and telling his father that he was dead. But God intended their evil for good. And we'll see more of that theme in the next chapter, in chapter 45, and then again in chapter 50 at the end of the book. But there's another layer to this question as well, this idea of uh, repaying evil for good. The brothers are being accused of doing that. You've repaid evil for good. They're being accused of having stolen from a host who was gracious and generous to them. He put on a feast for them. He fed them as kings, and they've stolen from him. That's the accusation. Now think back with me to the early chapters of Genesis. God had created the world in its beauty and perfection and had declared it to be very good. He had planted a garden filled with beautiful, fruitful, delicious trees. He graciously put Adam in it, generously gave him all the fruit of the garden to eat except for one. And what did Adam do? He stole. He stole the fruit of the one tree that was forbidden him. He repaid God's goodness with evil. So what we're seeing is Adam's sin pictured again in this accusation against Joseph's brothers. And, and, you know, this is really true of all our sin. Psalm 100, verse 5 says, The Lord is good indeed, his mercy never ends, and unto every coming age his faithfulness extends. The Lord is good. He has created us. He has breathed into us the breath of life. He's generously given us the whole of his creation to sustain our lives. Created plants that breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out the oxygen that we need to breathe. Every breath that we take is a gift from God. Take a deep breath right now. 
fill your lungs up. Feel that fullness and that life in your body and be thankful to God for that gift. Gravity is a gift, a gift from God. He created our planet in such a way that there is just exactly the right amount of gravity. It holds us on the earth so that we don't float away into space, but it doesn't crush us. It keeps us on the ground, but it allows us the freedom of movement. When you get up out of these pews and walk out of here this morning, thank God for the goodness of the gift of gravity. The sun shines in the sky, gives life to the plants. It produces vitamin D when it strikes our skin, a vitamin, a hormone that helps us to be healthy and to feel good. When you step out of the building today, lift your face to the sun with your eyes closed, please. And enjoy the feeling of the sunlight on your skin. That same sun produces the light that allows us to see the beauty of God's creation. Bringing delight to our eyes. Blue sky, white clouds, green grass, and all the various colors of the the plants and the flowers that God has created. When we get home today, I wager that all of us will eat lunch And I don't know what you'll have. I don't even know what I'm having for lunch today. But I suspect we'll all eat different things and that it will all taste good to us. You know, God didn't have to make food taste good. That's a gift from God. It's his goodness to us. Think about the menu that he created. You know, there are 7,500 varieties of apples in the world. 7,500 And they all taste a little different. Honeycrisp, Fiji, Granny Smith's, Red Delicious, and 7,495 others. And that's just the beginning. There are 120,000 varieties of rice in the world. 120,000 different lengths of grain, different textures, all sorts of different aromas and flavors. God's menu is amazing and abundantly generous. So when you pray over your lunch today, pray with thankfulness for the gift of taste, the variety of foods that God has provided. God has given us all sorts of gifts. He's given us families that we'll eat our lunch with. He's given us the church family. He's given us the gift of leisure and of work, of entertainment. He's given us all sorts of wonderful gifts, and that's to say nothing of our redemption, our salvation, our promised inheritance in eternity. What do we do with this goodness that God has given us? We say, that's not enough, God. I want more. I want the one thing you didn't put on the menu. I want the one thing that you forbade me to do. We repay his goodness with evil, with disobedience to his good law, which is also a gift, by the way. We are miserably wicked sinners, ungrateful to the nth degree. Our sin, no less than the sin of Adam or the sin of Joseph's brothers, is repaying God's goodness with evil. Adam's sin in the garden really serves as a template and a pattern for all of our sins. 
And so I want us to notice this morning as we work through the rest of this chapter, the details of Adam's sin in the garden and his subsequent reconciliation with God, the details that are likewise repeated here with Joseph's brothers, because it's, it's pretty amazing. They've been accused of this crime, of repaying evil with good, but they're convinced of their innocence. So they, they make a rash vow. They say, if one of us has taken it and you can find it, then the guilty one will be put to death and the rest of us will be your slaves. Now, remember in the last chapter, in chapter 43, they assumed when they were taken to Joseph's house at the beginning of chapter 43 that his intention was to accuse them of having stolen the money from, that was returned to them on the first trip and that he was going to use that as an excuse to enslave them. They seem kind of obsessed with the idea of slavery in Egypt. I wonder why that is. Feeling a little guilty about what they did to their brother Joseph. And now, once again, they've suggested slavery as the punishment for this crime. Now, Joseph Stewart and, and later Joseph himself will temper the situation by refusing to follow through on their extreme measure and will insist only on the slavery of the guilty party. Look at verse 17. But he said, this is Joseph, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So the steward searches. He finds the cup in Benjamin's sack. Now this Egyptian governor is going to claim their youngest brother as his slave and send the rest of them back to Jacob and Canaan. Now, this is Joseph's test for his brothers. Are they willing to abandon Benjamin to a life of slavery in Egypt? They had sold Joseph into slavery. Have they changed? Or are they willing to do the same with Benjamin? Let's return for a moment to the idea that I opened with, that Adam's sin, in Adam's sin, all humanity became slaves of sin. And here, with the accusation against Joseph's brothers, we see this idea of slavery as the result. The unregenerate man is enslaved by his sin. The scriptures use this language as we've already seen in Romans. And in 2 Timothy, Paul speaks of those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Slaves of sin, of death, and of the devil. We like to think that we're free agents, that we have free will, that, that we have freedom, especially as Americans. We like the idea of individual freedom. But the truth is, we are born as slaves. We're slaves to sin, to death, and to the one who has the power of death, according to Hebrews 2.14, the devil. And we're not being held against our will either. Our will has been enslaved by sin. We don't want to be free of it. The unregenerate man wallows in his sin like a pig in a mud puddle. We enjoy it. We celebrate it. You want proof? Just look at our culture around us. Celebrations of sin abound. There's no cultural effort being made by the unregenerate person to free himself from slavery to sin. Rather, we embrace it. We celebrate it. We, we mark it on the calendar so that we can take pride in our sin. 
This is an enslavement not just of the body, but of the mind, of the will, and of the affections. The only way to escape this slavery is for the Son of God to set you free. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. They've forgotten their history. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Freedom from sin is only found in Christ and in no other. So here are two elements of Adam's narrative repeated in the lives of Joseph's brothers, repaying good with evil and slavery as a result of sin. The third parallel that we find with Adam comes in verses 15 and 16. The brothers, when when Benjamin is found to be the guilty party, the brothers all return to the city in hopes of somehow securing Benjamin's freedom or at least just staying together with him. They come to the house and they, they fall to the ground before Joseph, once again fulfilling the dreams of his youth. And then Joseph asks them a question. Verse 15, Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? What have you done? Didn't you know I would figure this out? Does this strike you as familiar in any way? Genesis 3, verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat of it? What have you done? Didn't you know I would figure this out? And then comes the key verse in our passage this morning, verse 16. Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. This is fascinating. Judah asks a couple of rhetorical questions. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? The obvious answer is nothing. There is nothing they can say. The cup was in Benjamin's sack. They can't dispute that. They didn't steal it, but there's nothing they can say to prove that. How shall we clear ourselves? They can't. There's nothing they can do to prove their innocence to this Egyptian governor. And then Judah says, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. They didn't steal the cup, but they have sinned. They sinned grievously when they sold their brother into slavery and supposed death. They hid their sin from their father presumably from others in their lives, maybe even their wives. You can hide your sin from others. You can put on a show of outward piety. We call that hypocrisy. You can lie about it like Joseph's brothers did. 
You can even hide your sin from yourself. David prays in Psalm 119, saying, Who can understand his errors? Who can know? We can't even fathom our own sin and our own hearts. He then asks the Lord, Cleanse me from secret faults. Cleanse me from the sins I don't even know I'm guilty of. And there's the point. God knows. God could cleanse David from sins he didn't know he had committed because God knew what they were. You can't hide your sin from God. Numbers 32, 23, take note, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. It's impossible to hide your sin from the one who sees all, the one who knows all, understands all, and judges all. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Adam, in the garden, hid himself in the trees, thinking perhaps he could hide from God. That didn't work. Joseph's brothers lied about their sin, deceived their father and everyone else. They told the lie so often they came to believe it themselves. They believed Joseph was dead. They lived with the guilt of what they had done. It was eating away at them. On their first trip to Egypt, the money was returned to their sacks. And remember, they saw that as evidence that would condemn them in the eyes of the Egyptian governor. And they responded by saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now, once again, they've mysteriously been condemned for a crime they didn't commit. But they chalk it up to the judgment of God for the sin they did commit. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. You cannot hide your sin from God. He sees what is done in secret. He knows your most secret thoughts. There's a scary thought. God knows your innermost secret thoughts, the things you wouldn't even tell your spouse. God knows. He knows the desires of your heart better than you do. What's the... Where do we get off thinking we could hide our sin from God, that we could deceive Him? It's the height of foolishness. Psalm 94 says, Yet say they, God shall not see, nor God of Jacob know. Ye brutish people, understand, fools, when wise will ye grow? The Lord did plant the ear of man, and here then shall not he? He only formed the eye then shall he not clearly see? He that the nations doth correct, shall he not chastise you? He knowledge unto man doth teach, and shall himself not know? Man's thoughts to be but vanity, the Lord doth well discern. Blessed is the man thou chastenest, Lord, and makest thy law to learn. Our sin is the repaying of evil for the good that God has shown us. And it enslaves us. But we cannot hide it from God. He knows our sin. He knows our slavery. But despite Judah's acknowledgement in verse 16 that God has found out their sin and that there is nothing they can say in their own defense, he does try. And once again, he follows in Adam's footsteps. 
In the second half of the chapter, Judah intercedes for Benjamin. He, he has a conversation with Joseph, but notice that as he's doing so, he ever so subtly tries to shift the blame to Joseph for all of their ills. As Judah retells the events of the last couple of chapters, notice he continually highlights the role that Joseph as governor has played. In verse 19, he says, this all started when my Lord asked his servants. And then in verse 20, the brothers honestly answered the question in their innocence. And then in verse 21, then you said to your servants, and and, and Joseph put on them this unreasonable burden of bringing their youngest brother down to Egypt. They tried to explain to him in verse 22, it wasn't a good idea, but you said to your servants, in verse 23, threatening to cut their families off from the supply of food if they didn't do as he commanded. You see how he's putting the blame on Joseph? If you hadn't been so suspicious, if you hadn't asked so pointedly about our family, if you hadn't demanded that we bring our brother to Egypt, if you hadn't threatened our families with starvation... Sounds like Adam in the garden, doesn't it? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. He throws Eve under the bus, but he's really pointing his finger at God. If you hadn't given me this woman, God, none of this would have happened. Your fault, not mine. Now, Adam may have invented blame shifting like that, but I think we've perfected it by this point in human history. We, we, we blame anybody but ourselves for our own sin. Right? Our, our culture it, it loves to blame our parents, our circumstances, society as a whole. We, we just love to blame anyone but ourselves for our sins. Children do this all the time. If you're a parent and you've had to break up a fight between siblings. He hit me. She took my toy. She said this. He said that. They always point the finger at the other person. Never my fault. It's always the other person. Even as adults, we do this. We apologize for our sin by blaming the other person. We do this with our spouse. Okay, I'm sorry that I got angry, but you know, you really hurt me with those things that you said which is to say, I got angry, but it's not really my fault. It's kind of your fault. You started it all. You instigated it. You offended me, and that's why I got angry. My my anger is really justified because of what you did first. We've got to be careful about this, especially as husbands and wives, and men particularly I'm speaking to you. When you apologize to your wife, own it. Apologize for your sin. Don't mention hers. She has to deal with God for her own sin. Her sin is never justification for your sin. We have to own our own sin. We have to confess it with no qualifications, no excuses. Just confess that we sinned and ask forgiveness for it. Like I'm not saying it's easy. It's not. I don't have this down pat. But we need to learn to repent of our sin and stop trying to shift the blame to others, particularly to our wives. The same thing applies when we confess our sin to God. We don't have to try and justify our sin. God knows what our sins are. We're not convincing Him of our innocence. 
we need to confess our sin and trust His justification, not our own. Our sin is repaying evil for the good that God has shown us. It enslaves us. It's not hidden. God knows what our sin is, and it's our sin. We're guilty of it, and we need to confess it and take responsibility for it and not try to shift the blame to others. Next, look at the brother's response to the accusation when, it, when, it's, when the accusation is zeroed in on Benjamin in verse 12 and 13. So he, this is Joseph Stewart, searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. There are several interesting things of note here. First, the importance of the money returned to their sacks. As I said, it's not mentioned again here, but the steward, as he's searching the sacks, the money was right there in the mouth of each sack. The brothers can't help but see their money has been returned to them once again. And since all of them had their money returned, and they know they didn't do that, they didn't steal the money, They didn't hide it in their sacks, thinking they were going to get away with it. So when the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, the other brothers know he's innocent. If only the cup had been in Benjamin's sack and none of the money had been returned, the other brothers might have wondered, did he take the cup? Maybe he did. How do we know he didn't? But the fact that the money was returned in all their sacks clues them in that he didn't do this. He's as innocent as we are in all of this. And so their reaction to the accusation against Benjamin is that they tear their clothes in distress. They don't take pleasure in Benjamin's demise. They're distressed over it. There's a parallel here to how Jacob reacted to the news of Joseph's demise some 20-odd years earlier in verse Chapter 37, verse 34, Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. So for the attentive reader, as we read this episode with Joseph's brothers, we can see that their attitude towards Benjamin has changed. It's it's different than their attitude towards Joseph had been. seems they really have changed. The parallel with Adam is a little more difficult to see because we're going to need to peek ahead into chapter 45. The brothers have torn their clothes in their grief and their distress over this situation. They've ripped their garments. They return to Joseph. And after all of this is settled and Joseph finally reveals himself to them, he sends them back to Canaan to gather their families and their father and come down to Egypt. But before he sends them away, he gives them new clothes to wear. Chapter 45, verse 22, he gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. Well, they needed them. They had ripped their clothes. But if you'll remember, after Adam's sin, what did he do? He attempted to cover himself with clothes that he made for himself out of leaves, and it wasn't sufficient. After he had reconciled to God, God made clothes for Adam and Eve from the skins of animals. This implied the first blood sacrifice of animals for the sins of man, and it it hints at the idea of our sins being covered, clothed by God because of the sacrifice 
of Christ. So here in Genesis 44 and peeking ahead into 45, after the accusation of sin, the punishment of slavery, the one in authority then forgives the sin and clothes the sinner at his own expense. This is the good news of the gospel. And again, we have a wonderful picture of it here in our text. First, Judah, he goes to Joseph and he says in verse 18, Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. That is, you have the authority. You have the authority to deal with this crime. You have the authority to forgive it. You have the authority to decide who's going to take the punishment for this crime. And so Judah is making this appeal to Joseph as the one in authority. And what he does is he offers himself in Benjamin's place as a substitute. We see this in verses 32 and 34. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. We have an older brother who has given himself in our place to bear the curse of the law for our sins, setting us free to return home to the Father. What a great picture of the gospel. And it's, it's even more accurate than we might think at first glance. Our confession says that we are saved by means of the covenant of grace. It defines the covenant of grace this way. It says, Wherein he, that is God, freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So there's the the covenant of grace promised to us. But then the confession goes on and says that covenant of grace is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. This is what we call the covenant of redemption made between God the Father and God the Son in eternity before the earth had even been created. A covenant of redemption that the Father would give to the Son a people to be His own and that the Son would give Himself to redeem those people. That is pictured here in Genesis 44 when our text says that Judah became surety for the lad to my father. That agreement between Jacob and Judah pictures for us the covenant of redemption between the father and the son intended to accomplish our salvation. So Judah offers himself up as a willing sacrifice in Benjamin's place. This is what God has done for us in Christ. Knowing our slavery to sin, knowing our guilt, knowing himself to be holy and just, he planned our redemption in such a way, Paul says in Romans 3.26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Brian 
talked a little bit about this in CLA this morning. Our sin is not swept under the rug. It's not just shrugged at and forgotten. Our sin is punished by an altogether holy and just God. But Christ, the righteous one, took that punishment on himself so that God's holy justice could be satisfied and we could be justified by Christ's righteousness. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange, our sin for Christ's righteousness. Can you imagine what Benjamin must have felt in that moment when he heard Judah offer himself in Benjamin's place? Can you imagine the relief he must have felt? Can you imagine the love that must have stirred in his heart for his older brother in that moment? Now consider that Christ did much more than that for you. He didn't become a slave in Egypt. He suffered the wrath of a thrice holy, almighty God for your sin. Wrath that would have sent you to hell to suffer for an eternity. That's because our sin, our repaying of God's goodness with evil, is committed against an infinite God who is infinitely good, which makes our sin unspeakably and unfathomably wicked. And the punishment itself must be infinite. Christ is able to satisfy that infinite justice because not only is he fully man, but he is fully God, which means he is infinite in his divine nature, infinite goodness, infinite righteousness, infinite holiness, Therefore, the only one capable of satisfying the demands of infinite justice. Our response to Christ's sacrifice on our behalf should be an overwhelming sense of love for the one who has given himself for us as Judah did for Benjamin in that moment. We should experience a love for our older brother, the firstborn from the dead, as he is called in Colossians 1.18, that we might become the children of God. Imagine the joy when Judah returned to his father, not only with Benjamin by his side, but now with news that Joseph is alive and has prospered. This is the joy of Christ as he presents the church to his father as his brother's. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, And then there's a series of quotes here from the Psalms and various passages, but one of them is in verse 13, Here am I and the children whom God has given me. That's Christ speaking to the Father. Here they are. Here are the children that you've given me. I redeemed them and I've brought them home. Our sin is repaying evil for the good that God has shown us. The result of our sin is slavery and death. But God knows 
He knows our sin. He knows our slavery. By the grace and mercy of God, we who believe have been clothed anew in the righteousness of Christ that he might bring us to God as his brethren, freed from the bondage of sin and death, free to live forever in the light of God's love. God knows our slavery, and he has given Christ as a substitute to secure our freedom. Let's pray.